Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters. We're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, and I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my two wonderful gentlemen collaborators with me this morning on this fine Friday morning are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we say is our, well, he's our warrior in the courtroom there, defending the God-given right to keep and bear arms. Arms, and uh, we're grateful to really be bringing you the founder's view of law and government. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him. The only purpose of civil government is to defend those God-given rights. And we've just begun last Friday a new series we're calling The Decent Dozen. We took the dirty dozen, the 12, what we would evaluate as the worst Supreme Court cases, the ones that were most unconstitutional. But now we're trying to look at the best of the Supreme Court cases, ones that affirmed the view of the Constitution held by our founders, in other words, the correct view of the Constitution, and that supported things that our founders clearly stated. And uh, so this is an interesting study because there are some very good cases. And uh, sadly, some of these cases kind of get buried in history, like last week when we talked about uh, uh, Norton v. Shelby. And that's an important case, but nobody's ever heard of it. And it's, you know, kind of been buried in history. But this the one uh, this morning also deals with a very important issue, and that's the issue of contracts and how are contracts to be enforced? How are they uh, to be dealt with? And oddly enough, this is one bridge suing another bridge, the Charles River Bridge versus Warren Bridge. Actually, it's not the bridges, but the corporations that own those bridges that uh, were involved in this lawsuit. And it's a bit of a convoluted case, but it's important because the issue of contract and what contract meant in our Constitution and the protection of contract uh, is an essential point that is brought up by this Supreme Court case. So, Phil, why don't you take us in your view and and analysis of Charles River Bridge v. Warren Bridge? Well, this is a challenging case to analyze fairly. Uh, The five to two majority opinion was authored by Roger B. Taney, who would later acquire infamy as the author of Dred Scott versus Sanford opinion. One of the counsels arguing for Charles River Bridge was Daniel Webster, one of the most prominent lawyers of the 19th century and a dominant voice in the Senate. Adversaries in the case called upon the principles of contract, general welfare, and eminent domain. The syllabus for the case easily extends beyond 100 pages, making it difficult to assess the merits of case arguments. So what is the case background? Wikipedia describes how the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge Company were granted the right to build a bridge over the Charles River connecting Boston with Charlestown. Charles River Bridge Company was also granted the right to charge tolls to be paid by individuals using the bridge. And this is some of the the, uh, description that comes from Wikipedia. In 1640, the legislature of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, in accordance with common law, assumed control over public ferries. The legislature proceeded to give Harvard College permission to run a ferry on the Charles River between Boston and Charlestown. Harvard operated the ferry until 1785. That year, a group of men petitioned the state legislature to build a bridge across the river due to the inconvenience of the ferry. As time had passed, the two towns had grown and communication between them had become more important, and technology was at a point now where a bridge appeared to be a wise economic undertaking. The request was granted, and the Charles River Bridge Company was given permission to build a bridge and collect tolls 
for 40 years. But during those 40 years, the company would have to pay 200 pounds or approximately $670 to Harvard College annually in order to make up for the profits the college would lose from the ferry. After 40 years of collecting tolls, the company would turn the bridge over to the state, but the government would still have to make uh, the annual payment. In 1792, the Massachusetts legislature extended this charter 70 years from the opening of the bridge. It then describes how an independent company, the Warren Bridge Company, was granted a subsequent franchise to build a bridge close to the Charles River Bridge, competing with the latter. As time passed, the population of Boston increased, as did the amount of business the city was going was doing with the rest of the world. With these increases, the Charles River Bridge collected more and more profits. The value of the company's stock started to rise. Shares that had a par value of $333.33 sold for $1,650 in 1805, and by 1814, their price had risen to $2,080. By 1823, the value of the company was estimated to be $280,000, a substantial increase from its original value of $50,000. Between 1786 and 1827, the Charles River Bridge had collected $824,798 in tolls. Very few of the shares belonged to the company's original investors at this time, and the stock was now owned by men who had bought it at very high prices. The public started to complain about having to continue to pay tolls after the bridge's profits had far surpassed the original capital with interest. But the new investors did not care. In their opinion, they had paid a large sum for the bridge stock, and they did not wish to stop collecting tolls until they themselves had turned a profit. These proprietors decided not to meet any of the public's demands, and they refused both to improve services and reduce uh, tolls. There were multiple attempts to convince the state legislature to give permission to build a new bridge between Boston and Charlestown which would be in direct competition with the Charles River Bridge. Eventually, the legislature agreed to grant a charter for a new bridge between Charlestown and Boston, and in 1828, a company was given the rights to build the Warren Bridge, 275 yards from the first one. The Warren Bridge would be turned over to the state once enough tolls had been collected to pay for the uh, bridge's construction or after a, a maximum of six years, um, after which it would be free to the public. Since it was free and so close to the Charles River Bridge, the Warren Bridge would obviously take all of the competing bridge's traffic, and therefore its construction would leave the stock of the Charles River Bridge highly devaluated, and the shareholders would stand to lose a great deal of money. The owners of the Charles River Bridge appealed to the legislature, which responded by giving them another 30 years to collect tolls, extending the collection period to 100 years. So enough of the uh, Wikipedia description of the background of the case. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the general welfare and eminent domain idea uh, that is involved in this case. It is easy to be biased against the treatment uh, by the Massachusetts legislature and assume that this case should have been settled according to Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution of the United States and the principle that no state shall impair the obligation of contracts. This is particularly true if we are mindful of James Madison's opinion in the Federalist Number 41, in which he comments that a provision of Article 1, Section 8, the con Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, 
and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, that does not grant the federal government additional powers beyond the list of particulars in the remainder of Article 1, Section 8. Madison's point, however, is valid for the federal constitution, but does not necessarily apply to the states. Both Madison and Hamilton assured readers of the Federalists that they were in agreement about the separation of powers between the federal government and the states. Each governmental entity had sovereignty over different objects. The Constitution described those objects particularly in Article 1, Section 8, but also elsewhere in the Constitution. In addition, Article 1, Section 9 placed limits on Congress's powers, while Section 10 placed limits on the states. In the language of Amendment 10, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Whereas the powers of the federal government are enumerated in few, the powers of the state are broad and constrained by bills of individual rights at the federal and state level. These powers are generally described as police powers, which Encyclopedia Britannica defines in United States Constitution law as the permissible uh, scope of federal or state legislation so far as it may affect the rights of the individual when those rights conflict with the promotion and maintenance of the health, safety, morals, and general welfare of the public. One can immediately see a problem in this definition if both state and federal governments are assumed to have equivalent police powers. What happens when both types of government are assumed to have equivalent police powers over the same objects. The law then leads to conflict, whereas its purpose is to resolve conflict. One level of government must be constrained with limited enumerated powers, whereas the other level can be more general. This is the assumption upon which the, the Constitution of the United States was framed. That assumption is also consistent with the fundamental principle of social contracts, that federal governments are created by the states that form them. And at the formation of government, it is the states that are the empowering entity, not the reverse. Encyclopedia Britannica continues, when the U.S. Supreme Court has considered such cases, it has tended to use a doctrine called balance of interests to determine whether a state has the right to exercise its implied police powers, although that exercise may be in conflict with a federal law, either statutory or constitutional. The court has held in these instances that if a state does enact legislation for the protection and maintenance of the health, safety, or welfare of its citizens, such laws fall within the most traditional concept of the state's police power. Therefore, even in matters where federal laws take precedence over those of the state, the court has decided, has decided in favor of the state. According to Charles River Bridge, it has been, it had been harmed by Warren Bridge. This is curious in that if there were injury to Charles River Bridge as a result of breach of contract, that harm would have been initiated by the legislature of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in granting Warren Bridge a franchise that lessened the income-generating potential of the Charles River Bridge franchise. That potential was based upon a monopoly. The Charles River Bridge claimed the legislature of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had previously granted. The franchise granted to Warren Bridge initially converted a monopoly into a duopoly, with both firms forced to compete with each other. Once the costs of building and maintaining the Warren Bridge had been covered, 
and the Commonwealth's obligations to the Warren Bridge Corporation had been met, ownership of the Warren Bridge passed to the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth chose to make the use of the bridge toll-free, socializing the cost of its maintenance through taxation. There's a tendency when judging such cases to employ the concept of fairness, but fairness can be deceptively subjective. In a sense, Warren Bridge was not the real defendant in this case, but the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, with the legislator, legislature acting as their uh, agent. What Charles River Bridge might perceive as fair conflicted with what the people considered to be fair. The defendant's counsel, Greenleaf, noted that the defendants were merely authorized to indemnify themselves for the cost of the erection of the bridge by collecting tolls for a period not exceeding six years from the commencement. They were afterwards constituted the agents of the Commonwealth by special statutes to receive tolls for its use two years longer. But those statutes having expired, the bridge has become free. He further noted the general objects of the plaintiff's bill are, first, to obtain reimbursement of the tolls already diverted from their bridge and received at the Warren Bridge, and secondly, to prevent the use of the latter as a public way. What Charles River Bridge considered fair clearly conf conflicted with what the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts considered to be fair. Wikipedia observes, as time passed, the population of Boston increased, as did the amount of business the city was doing with the rest of the world. With these increases, the Charles River Bridge collected more and more profits, and the value of the company's stock started to rise. Shares that had a par value of $333.33 sold for $1,650 in 1805, and by 1814, their price had risen to $2,080. By 1823, the value of the company was estimated to be 280000 a substantial increase from its original value of 50000 We should reflect on the purpose of the law. The law is an alternative to one side in a conflict, violently imposing its view of what is fair on the other. Chief Justice Taney's majority opinion restated the plaintiff's case as being based upon two grounds. First, that by virtue of the grant of 1650, Harvard College was entitled in perpetuity to the right of keeping a ferry between Charlestown and Boston, that this right was exclusive, and that the legis legislature had not the power to establish another ferry on the same line of travel, because it would infringe on the rights of the college, and that these rights, upon the erection of the bridge in the place of the ferry, under the Charter 1785, were transferred to and became vested in the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge. And that order, or that under, uh, and by virtue of this transfer of the ferry right, the rights of the bridge company were as exclusive in that line of travel as the rights of the ferry. Second, that independently of the ferry right, the acts of the legislature of Massachusetts of 1785 and 1792, by their true construction necessarily implied that the legislature would not authorize another bridge, and especially a free one, by the side of this and placed in the same line of travel, and whereby the franchise granted to the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge should be rendered of no value, and the plaintiffs in error contend that the grant of the ferry to the college and of the char charter to the proprietors of the bridge are both contracts on the part of the state, and that the law authorizing the erection of the Warren Bridge in 1828 impairs the obligation of one of these contracts. 
To the contrary, Taney stated, the ferry, then of necessity, ceased to exist. As soon as the bridge was erected, and when the ferry itself was destroyed, how can rights which were incident to it be supposed to survive? The exclusive pr privileges, if they had such, must follow the fate of the ferry and can have no legal existence without it. And if the ferry right had been assigned by the college in due and legal form to the proprietors of the bridge, they themselves extinguished that right when they erected the bridge in its place. In other words, if there were a violation of contract, that violation had to be specific to the charter granted by the Commonwealth to Charles River Bridge. Could there be another uh, argument by implication that might prove the legislature of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was guilty of violation of contract? The Taney opinion dismissed implied contract with a statement of the law. But we are not now left to determine for the first time the rules by which public grants are to be construed in this country. The subject has already been considered in this court, and the rule of construction above stated fully established. In the case of the United States versus uh, Arredondo, the leading cases upon this subject are collected together by the learned judge who delivered the opinion of the court, and the principal recognized that in grants by the public, nothing passes by implication. Adopting the rule of construction above as the settled one, we proceed to apply it to the Charter 1785 to the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge. This act of incorporation is in the usual form, and the privileges such as are commonly given to, to corporations of that kind. It confers on them the ordinary faculties of a corporation for the purpose of building the bridge and establishes certain rates of toll which the company are authorized to take. This is the whole grant. There is no exclusive privilege given to them over the waters of Charles River, above or below their bridge. No right to erect another bridge themselves, nor to prevent other persons from erecting one. No engagement from the state that another shall be uh, executed, and no undertaking not to sanction uh, competition, nor to make pre uh, improvements that may diminish the amount of, the, of its income. Upon all these uh, subjects, the charter is silent, and nothing is said in it about a line of travel so much insisted on in the argument in which they are to have exclusive privileges. No words are used from which an intention to grant any of these rights can be inferred. If the plaintiff is entitled to them, it must be implied simply from the nature of the grant and cannot be inferred from the words by which the grant is made. We might argue that the opinion of the majority of the court was not fair, but fairness like beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. The opinion is within the boundaries of the law, and given the complexities of this case, it is reasonable to assign it to the decent category. <laughs> Amen, Phil. I agree. And thank you for unpacking what is indeed a complicated case over a long period of history. And uh, But the thing I appreciate about this case so much is it points out the importance of contract. And we need to remember that our founders viewed contract as a sacred right. It is one of your God-given rights that you could form a contract with another person, two parties willingly entering into the contract. And whatever agreement they come uh, up with, 
that is, if it is within a lawful realm. So in other words, uh, you couldn't uh, form a contract to uh, conspire to murder somebody or, or something that's against the law. But uh, any legal, legitimate contract that you form, you're free to form that. And and when you form that, the words of the contract and what the contract meant when it was uh, approved of by both parties, that's what it means in the future. So you can't go down the future and say, well, you know, we intended or we thought and and uh, we're, we're going to change the terms of the contract. So that's I, I see here. That's what uh, Taney is doing. He's saying there's no statements in this. Uh, Charles River Bridge uh, contract with the state of Massachusetts that gives anything uh, like they're claiming uh, an exclusive right to have a bridge over the river in a certain direction of travel and all of those uh, details that that involves. So clearly, Taney is saying the contract as it was originally ratified by both parties, that's the meaning. And you cannot later on down the road say, oh, no, no, we're going to change the meaning of some of those words. We're going to imply that this uh, right to build the bridge also uh, implied that nobody else was going to be given the freedom to build a bridge across the, uh, the Charles River, and we've got that exclusive right. What you see there is they thought, the Charles River Bridge Company thought they had a monopoly granted to them by the legislature of the state of Massachusetts. And here, here's the big problem. And actually, if you go back to the root of this, where it started, in a sense, is where the problem began, because uh, the uh, college, uh, the, my, we would argue today, probably one of the wealthiest colleges in the world, Harvard, was granted this exclusive right to create a ferry across the river. And I'm not sure what was in the thinking there of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, so that's all, all Already back in 1640, and they were saying that they had the authority to assume control over public ferries. Well, um, I'm not so sure that that should be assumed that they have the right to control public ferries. When you think of a ferry, and there's a, a little section in our community here where there's a, a, a was a ferry that crossed the Severn River, and I'm interested in it because it's named after my family, Whitney Ferry. And then so, but on both sides today, I mean, there's no ferry there today, but on both sides, Whitney's Landing and Whitney Ferry are are labels that uh, are some of the roads. So there was this ferry that was owned by someone who obviously owned something on both sides of the river. And therefore, they had the right to have a boat to cross the river from one property of theirs to the other property of theirs. And they could ferry passengers across the river and they could ferry uh, wagons across the river as, as they did in the history of, of that particular ferry. So uh, why would the government assume that they have the control over somebody using the waterways to convey themselves, their friends or anyone that would like to pay them to convey them and their goods? across the river. If you have landing rights on both sides of the river, either you own the property or maybe you rent the property from the person who does own the property, shouldn't you have the right uh, to cross the river and uh, cross it at a profit? So I kind of disagree with where this all started, where the Massachusetts Bay Colony said that, hey, we have the control over all public ferries. And uh, that's where, you, in a sense, you get the nose of the camel in the tent here where the government says, we're in control of the waters and therefore you cannot use the waters unless we give you permission to use the waters and we're going to choose to give 
Harvard College the uh, exclusive right to have a ferry across the, the Charles River. That, that's where I think the problem began. Now, obviously, when ha- Harvard stopped operating that ferry, as, as Tanny rightly points out, it's like, wait a minute, that whole agreement expired. They cannot really transfer that agreement uh, to uh, the, the Charles River Bridge uh, Company. And the other curious thing is there that when the legislature granted the Charles Br- River Bridge Company to build their bridge, they required them to pay a stipend to Harvard in perpetuity. For so many years, they're going to have to pay Harvard uh, because Harvard was going to lose out on its income from the ferry. So you're just compounding the monopoly problem that began with the assumption that the government uh, owns the water, I guess you would say, and, and the government therefore can control who crosses the water. Now that may be an issue where you could say external. You know, when you're when you're leaving a port, the Boston port, and you're sailing across uh, the ocean. Well, okay, yes, the Boston port, uh, and obviously ships coming into Boston port are going to have to pay tariffs for the goods they unload there. So you may have an argument that uh, international trade uh, and international crossing those water uh, boundaries. That's something the civil government has a rightful control over. But I'm I'm struggling with this, and I'm not sure that this is a good decision to allow civil government to say, hey, we control the waters, and nobody can use a boat on the water and cross a body of water, not crossing any international boundary, not crossing into another country, but staying within, in this case, their own colony, the same Massachusetts Bay colony, that the government is in control of who runs any of the public ferries. And that uh, then, of course, the Charles River Bridge having uh, given a monopoly, we know what happens with monopolies. When you have a monopoly, you always get a, a, a service or good that is extremely high priced and is shoddy. It's not good at all in, in terms of what the consumer actually has to live with. And that's the case of monopolies all the time. And by the way, monopolies will, ne- will never exist without the civil government getting involved in some agreement whereby they're going to control or restrict the trade uh, and ability of, of uh, individuals and companies. So the monopoly system, as uh, our constitution here in Maryland says, uh, monopolies are odious. You know, they're contrary uh, to a free government and ought not to be tolerated. That's the language of our state constitution. I happen to agree with it because I think monopolies do not allow the free market to operate. So quite obviously, the people of Boston, uh, they were being charged more than they needed to be charged because the Warren River Bridge was built, it was paid for, and then it became free because, you know, obviously the, the, the sums of money involved in paying for the original construction were fulfilled. So, well, why were the people still paying this high toll uh, for this uh, Charles River Bridge? And that, that company continuing to make enormous profits and obviously their stock going through the roof and people speculating on the future of that company and, and the, the benefits and the profits that they could make. Why Why not just allow whoever chooses to build a bridge? You know, if you own the land on both sides and you have the financial resources and you put it together and you build a bridge and you charge what you deem is is correct. So instead of having two bridges, what if you had 10 bridges crossing the Charles River? You would have competition. And obviously, if anybody charged a higher toll than the others, they would lose business and those who were charging the lower toll would gain business. And why not allow the free market to have uh, sway? But here in America today, most people believe that uh, 
we have to have the civil government involved in things like bridges and things like roads and all kinds of other infrastructure, what are called infrastructure, by the way, that huge bill that just passed uh, on infrastructure, uh, very little of it had to do with actual infrastructure. But that argument that says we have to rely on the government and the government has to have a monopoly on roads and bridges and those sort of uh, structures, I think is a false argument. The free market could function in that role. The first um, road in America that was uh, crossing state boundaries that became a highway is the National Pike, just outside of Baltimore, heading, heading west into the Alleghenies. And that was all privately built. It was all privately owned, and you paid a toll as you passed across each person's land. When you, you know, paid the toll to enter their land and, and when check when you leave the land. So it was a private corporation that individuals who owned the property were the ones who actually maintained the road, and they were the ones who owned the road. That is until the federal government, state government came along and said, we got a better idea. We're just going to take that road from those people, and we're going to maintain it, and we're not going to charge anybody everything. And again, that's exactly what's happening. Happening there with the Warren Bridge Company, the legislature said you can build the bridge, but as soon as you've paid for it, then it's going to be publicly owned by the state of Massachusetts, and we're going to decide not to charge any toll at all. Which uh, Phil, you've rightly pointed out, there is a toll being paid. Then there has to be maintenance of the bridge, or it's going to fall down into the river, and nobody will be crossing it. But the maintenance and the payment of that is forced upon everyone in the state of Massachusetts. So the taxpayers of Massachusetts who may never use the bridge if they live out in Springfield on the west side of the state, they may never go to Boston. They may never use that bridge, but their taxes have to pay for it. And so, again, I think this is the danger of having a state-run monopoly uh, on these uh, transportation issues, whether they're roads, bridges, or, or other means of transportation. And so I like this case. Because Taney, uh, I believe, ruled correctly that contracts mean what they meant when they were signed, not some subsequent idea that, oh, you know, there's an implied power here and, and we can get something that, uh, you know, we didn't really have at the beginning of the contract. I appreciate him for that uh, because, as our founders believed, contracts were sacred and they were deemed to be sacred. As you rightly pointed out, Phil, in Article 1, Section 10, uh, states may not impair uh, the fulfillment of of those contracts. However, uh, during the rule of FDR, things began to change and the Supreme Court said, ah, you know, if there's an emergency such as in that case, it would have been the Great Depression. Ah, you know, those, those contracts are, are not so sacred after all. And, and we can step in and, and allow those violations of those contracts uh, to take those. In, the, in that case, it was uh, contracts regarding people's mortgages. And when people could not pay the bank and, and pay their mortgage, uh, the, the state was interfering and saying, well, no, no, you can't foreclose. You can't take the property back, even though the mortgage contract says you could. And so from that point forward, we have seen federal and state governments impairing the obligation of contract, which is directly in violation of the Constitution. Well, Mike, why don't you bring us your thoughts on uh, the Charles River Bridge case? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, I had a case last week where someone was charged with a firearms possession crime. And the problem is that this particular law has 16 exceptions, one of which clearly applied to the defendant in this case. Now, when the prosecutor's made aware of the exception, which is very plainly written, I don't believe he had been aware of the exception prior to that. Instead of acknowledging that, though, he instead claimed the exception didn't apply 
and that it meant something other than what it says. When I left court, I called another lawyer friend of mine to talk about some other business. He's about 30 years older than I am, so he's been around for a while. And since I had him on the phone, I told him about the case, and I asked him if he knew about that exception. He replied yes. I asked if he had ever had a case with that particular exception, and he said no. I asked how he had been familiar with that exception, and his reply was, I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, he had been on a three-person committee responsible for drafting that legislation years ago. So, of course, I asked him, when you wrote that exception, what did you intend it to mean? And he replied, exactly what it says. (laughs) (laughs) I've been on the other end of these situations, too, unfortunately. You know, a colleague of mine had a case in New Jersey where his client was moving to a new home and he was transporting his firearms and ammunition. He was charged with unlawful possession of the firearms and ammunition. And there's an exemption for transporting firearms while moving under New Jersey law. But oddly enough, there's no explicit exemption for transporting hollow point ammunition while moving. Keep in mind, um, if you're not under exemption, possession of what they call hollow nose or dumb, dumb bullets will land you a felony crime of the fourth degree and 18 months in state prison per round. The court held that the transport of the firearms was exempt, but the transport of the ammunition was not. My colleague argued, Your Honor, clearly it's implied. What are you supposed to do when you sell your house? Leave the new owner a bottle of champagne and all of your hollow point ammunition? And the judge's response was, If the law doesn't say it, you don't get the exemption. Period. And bang the gavel. Now, I think what we have here is a problem where we're begging for the implied exemption only because of many other problems that should have been solved. You know, we have this ridiculous legislation. You have government overreach and infringement on constitutional rights. And because of those, we're in the position where we need to argue what is implied. If we solve those more serious problems, then this wouldn't be an issue in the first place. It reminds me of those cartoons where there's a leak and they plug a hole and the water starts pouring out of somewhere else. And then they plug that hole and the water starts pouring out of somewhere else. Pretty soon they run out of fingers to plug the holes because they haven't solved the root of the problem. That's also the problem, in my opinion, with deciding what is fair, as Phil mentioned. When you litigate through the very end, for the most part, you have a winner and you have a loser. When you try to get into what's fair, what's fair to one party may be of the detriment to the other, and splitting the baby, so to speak, is often a bad outcome. In contract law, we learned about the Willistonian approach and the four corners doctrine that's associated with that. And with that principle, when the language of a contract is clear and unambiguous, you can't bring additional evidence to try to prove what the contract was supposed to mean. If you have ambiguous terms, meaning when you have terms that have more than one meaning, under the Willistonian approach, you can only look to the four corners of the document to try to figure out what that means. So you have to stay within the document itself. I think the bottom line is you can see why you can go either way on this one and this idea in general. But the reasons you'd shy away from things meaning what they say is often a product of other outside problems, just as Pastor Whitney mentioned. These are not problems with the contract itself. And once you're 10 steps in the wrong direction down that road, that's when you have to argue what's implied. Oh, thank you, Mike. Well, what, what, what's your thoughts, uh, both of you, on the idea that, hey, maybe we ought to privatize all the roads, all the bridges, you know, and get the government out of the monopoly of uh, being in, in, in control of these things? Well, personally, I'd like to see us move in that direction. I, I think that an overnight decision to, to do that would be too 
too uh, disruptive. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I am very much in favor of uh, programs that would lead us toward less government control. And particularly if we we uh, uh, use the process of, of uh, evaluating each of these steps and moving that direction, uh, if we use the critique process properly to learn lessons along the way, I think that uh, that is the right direction. And I often use the example of uh, with my son, who is very, very much a a total uh, free market, private property uh, kind of uh, person, that uh, let's let's focus on the uh, uh, the national parks. Should we immediately uh, privatize the the national parks? And my point about this is, we've got the Department of Education, the Department of Interior, and a number of other more obvious departments in the federal government that should be taken down and and privatized. Uh, Let's learn from those experiences and then determine uh, when and if and how we might move in that direction for the uh, the uh, national parks. We may learn through that process that we don't want to do that, that we do want to to have that included within the powers of the federal government. If that is the case, then let's do it constitutionally by passing an amendment. Okay. Well, I've got two quick points on that. First of all, uh, we all know that the government is so efficient at doing what it does that I don't know how we'd get the roads any better if it weren't run by the government because because of how efficient they are. (laughs) (laughs) And second, if we do, then then what are they going to claim they need taxes for? It seems like every single time they talk about why we need to pay so many so many taxes and our taxes are so high, they point to the roads like, oh, well, uh, you know, we need to pay for the roads. So as far as I as far as I know, all of our money is going to the roads right now. (laughs) (laughs) The, the, I was reading about uh, the extremely high price of gasoline in California. They're probably the worst state in the union in terms of price of gas. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Hawaii is worse. But anyway, but it was interesting. The person breaking down what you paid for a gallon of gas, how much went into the taxes, not just the federal taxes, but then the state taxes on top of the federal taxes. And then there's, you know, something about the reclamation and, and other things. And, oh, we got to pay for public transportation as part of the tax on gasoline. It's like, what? wait a minute. We were told that yeah, this gas tax that is being imposed is only to to fix the roads. And our experience here in Maryland is very interesting in that regard because that fund that was supposed to be sacrosanct, you know, the money that you pay when you buy a gallon of gas that is going to go to fix the roads goes into a certain fund. And supposedly nobody could touch that fund unless it was for definitely fixing, improving, or building roads. Well, guess what the politicians did? They stole the whole fund. And there was nothing. Nothing left and the roads were shambles because they are politicians and they lie and they steal and they cheat. And so, uh, you know, I think we'd have a better system, in my view. If we were to, it would take time to do this, of course, to move progressively towards saying the roads are going to be privatized and uh, we'll figure out how to, you know, people today use Easy Pass to get everywhere and, you know, figure out a way that it can be paid. Uh, those who do own the portion or the, a portion of the stock, there can be uh, money that they're making, but also there can be there for competition. Because if you have competition, then you're going to make decisions about where you're driving. There's one road in, in Maryland, 200, I think it is, that 
you know, is a toll road and uh, you have to have an easy pass to ride on it or else, uh, you know, you have problems and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, but there's ways around that road. So if you don't want to use that road, you can use some other roads. So you make a mental calculation. Okay, it's going to cost me that much to use that road versus doing this. It may cost me more time or whatever. You make that calculation and you make that decision as a driver rather than having the government impose on all of us who drive and say, you're all going to pay for this uh, and you don't have any any choice in the matter. There's an interesting uh, uh, parallel to that with Route 301, which uh, I believe starts or or really has uh, an entrance uh, in Delaware, uh, a couple of entrances actually, and uh, as you entrance, uh, as you enter the uh, the road, uh, they take a picture of your your license plate, and uh, uh, then you know if you want to go down to the uh, Annapolis Bay Bridge, uh, the the four dollars uh, probably seems reasonable. What you uh, drivers probably don't realize is that if they take another road, they can get on in uh, Maryland and not pay anything. So the the road itself is is being taken. It, the uh, the state of Delaware takes advantage of collecting the tolls, and I don't know whether they've got an arrangement with uh, the state of Maryland or not. But that nonetheless, most of the of Route 301 is in Maryland. Yes, and you don't collect any any uh, tolls there. <laughs> Uh, and, and that toll collection by uh, license plate, I've had some experience with the state of New Jersey regarding that, where they sent the bill too late for it to be paid on time, which meant the $50 kicked in of the fines. You know, so what would have been like a 3 or $4 toll? It was $53. It's like, what? Highway robbers. The, the government <laughs> is crooked. The government is corrupt. Well, I know New Jersey's run by the mafia because I, I grew up there. But that, <laughs> that's another example of why, uh, you know, it'd be better privatized because there could be some accountability for for what they're doing. That's phenomenal what you said about the gas tax, because ultimately you hear a lot of these politicians, particularly with this administration, talking about how gas is so high because the oil and gas companies are greedy, right? That's whose fault it is. Uh, ultimately, you don't see the government looking to leave any of their profits on the table, right? <laughs> yeah, of course not. <laughs> Now, in Pastor, fact, sorry, the, the case there in California is they recently added a bunch of taxes to the gas tax. And it's like, I get it. They don't want people using internal combustion engines. That's mm. that's simply what it comes down to. We're going to tax you to death. But the, the gas tax, the other thing here is the gas tax is connected to only automobiles using gasoline that use the road. Why is it that the electric cars get a free pass? They don't have to pay any taxes regarding road maintenance, but they use the roads. And and again, their use of the roads consumes, uh, you know, resource that ultimately you're going to have to repair the potholes. You may have to repave the road. You may have to rebuild the bridge. But those electric cars pay absolutely nothing to that. It's only the people who are purchasing gasoline that pay for that. Something corrupt about that. And I'm not any kind of expert on electric vehicles. I had seen reports around Christmas time because Christmas Eve, I think, was nine degrees in Pennsylvania and felt like 20 below. But people were taking two hours to charge their electric vehicles because of the cold. And people certainly become less mobile in general. I don't know if that's an agenda of the government. 
in making this push. Oh, yeah. Well, Indeed, the batteries don't work as well in the cold. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, because uh, if the batteries do not work as well in the cold, they're they're less efficient, then the people who are promoting them should probably want to go to the places that are affected by global warming. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the idea. Push everybody to Florida and Arizona or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, here's my opinion on, on why the push for electric vehicles, uh, it's control. They know with an electric vehicle, they can, you know, shut your power down. You remember in California, they were, you know, urging everybody, go get an electric car. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, don't plug your electric car in for the next couple of days because uh, we don't have enough electricity because they've been doing what? They've been shutting down electric production facilities, particularly electric production facilities that are based on coal. And uh, so they've been shutting those down. They don't have enough electricity. So when everybody plugs their electric car in, <laughs> there's not enough electricity. What? Okay, so that means you're not going to be able to go anywhere. I think the internal combustion engine is one of the greatest uh, tools of freedom. And I think uh, electric cars are, mm, I think, the opposite of that, in my opinion. Uh, Pastor David, I, I wanted to note that I agree with you on your uh, your observation that uh, concerning the, the assumption that the state owns navigable waters um, like the Charles River. Uh, going closer to home here uh, in Chesapeake Bay in Maryland in particular, because uh, my, my nephew operates a uh, fishing charter boat, um, what happens under that, that assumption if he uh, leaves his, his slip for which he is paid, he's got rights that uh, um, have been granted by the owner of, of the uh, property adjacent to the waters. He now goes into whose water? Is it Maryland's water? And uh, then let us say that he takes a, a charter down to the uh, Virginia line and goes beyond by a couple of miles. Should he be paying uh, a, a toll, if you will, to uh, Virginia as well? <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is kind of absurd. I think, uh, you know, the idea that our, our navigable waters are, are essentially free to all citizens should be the principle. Yes, agreed. And uh, that's one of the debates about uh, fishing licenses uh, as well, because who owns those fish that claims that you have to get a license from the owner of the fish in order to be able to catch the fish and keep the fish, eat the fish if you choose to eat the fish? Well, it kind of takes us back to medieval England, you know. The king owns not only all the deer on, on the land, so you got to get a license from the king if you're going to shoot a deer, uh, but he owns all the fish in the sea as well. So if you're going to get any of the king's fish, then you've got to get a license from the king. It's like, wait a minute, that's medieval thinking. You know, the government owns everything. Uh, and the government owns the land, the government owns the sea, the government owns all the animals, government owns all the fish. And if you're going to get any of those, you got to get a license from him uh, to get those. And uh, I have some friends who are watermen on the Chesapeake Bay, and uh, they've been battling the state of Maryland over who can raise oysters. I mean, oysters in, in the Chesapeake are so common. They've been part of the history of this, of this state from before it existed as a state. So, well, the government claims that it really owns all the oysters in the Chesapeake Bay. 
and it can control whether you can get the oysters or not get the oysters. And if you, you know, you get the wrong oysters or you go into a sanctuary place where they have said nobody can get any oysters at all, the government owns them all, well, you're going to be in big, big trouble because the government will find you and maybe even imprison you for taking the king's oysters. So we're back to the medieval concept that the king, or in this case, the government owns everything. Well, isn't that the uh, the issue with the national parks that yes. they own? And uh, where did they get the funds to uh, acquire these national parks? They got them from the people. <laughs> you know, it's not like the government itself had an independent source of income. It used the power of coercion to uh, to tax in order to pay for for the land. Of course, today they wouldn't even do that. They would simply print the money and and pay for it. <laughs> And again, though, just to comment on that, the Constitution is pretty clear, the restricted ownership of land for the federal government, not not saying what the states can or cannot do. That depends on the state constitution. But the federal government, it's uh, forts, magazines, arsenal, dockyards, other needful buildings. If you look at the list of those buildings, they're all military related. So you could say, yes, a, a military fort would be something that is uh, necessary militarily. But outside of that and, and the uh, you know 10 square miles that were uh, set aside for Washington, D.C., and then the territories like Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, and so forth that are not states, those are the only things that Congress has any authority over or any ownership of. Therefore, national parks are not on the list and national monuments and national forests and all the other things that they claim, none of them are constitutional. But you're right, Phil, it would be a difficult process to undo that. Although one state was attempting, uh, Utah was attempting to uh, take back uh, national lands, and I think they were exempting the you know famous national parks like Zion and and Arches and Bryce and so forth. They were saying well, we're not going to take those back, but we're going to take back those other lands, particularly the ones that under Clinton were grabbed from the state of Utah and said, oh, these are now national escalated. This is this, and you know we're now making this a national monument. And therefore, we're going to restrict people from mining or, or uh, you know, uh, logging or any of the other or, or ranching, any of the other activities. And, you know, the state of uh, Utah lost out. And I haven't heard the outcome yet of the battle that they were basically telling the feds, get out of our, our state. This land belongs to us. It does not belong to the federal government. And the Constitution, I think, affirms that that, that is indeed the case. You know, national monuments used to mean things like statues of, of uh, presidents and, and so forth. But uh, the, the language has been twisted to mean whatever uh, whatever uh, Humpty Dumpty wants it to mean. And they have gobbled up enormous amounts of land. If you look at a map of the West, you go west of the Mississippi and you find that there's states who are, you know, 80 percent, 90 percent of the land is owned by the federal government. <laughs> and uh, so quite obviously, that restricts the people and uh, would uh, increase the, the value of the land that is not owned by the federal government, but uh, clearly puts a, a chokehold on the people. And uh, uh, I've done a DVD if people are interested in that. The federal land grab is what it's called. And uh, and check that out on the website, theamericanview.com. That's a federal land grab that walks through how the federal government began very early to violate the Constitution and grab land in the new states as the new states were coming into the Union, grab the land before the state was even formed. 
and take control of that land. And, and then uh, that has just grown worse and worse as the years have gone by. And then Alaska is <laughs> the worst example where the federal government you know, controls most of the state and uh, most of the land in that state. Yeah. And of course, uh, Congress has the, the uh, power to uh, recognize new states and they set criteria. And uh, yeah, can you argue that uh, uh, this land belongs to the state uh, or belongs to uh, private owners if the federal go- government claims that the land belongs to to it? I mean, basically, they're telling you, uh, you, you want to become a, a state? Do it our way. Mm-hmm. And indeed, that's what they did with Alaska. You know, they basically said, here's the deal. You come into the union. And all this land actually is ironic because in Alaska, they actually said, we're going to give you, you know, these areas. Here's the land we're going to give you. Well, we're going to retain, I forget, it's 85, 90 percent of the land. We're going to retain that for the federal government. But basically, it's our land and we're going to be so generous. We're going to grant you these acres here in Alaska. But the rest of it is ours. And uh, again, completely unconstitutional. When a state comes into union, there shouldn't be any such uh, coercion. And the land should be, the land that's not sold, it's not uh, owned by individuals, should be in the possession of the state government. Uh, to do what it, according to its own constitution, chooses regarding that land. But uh, getting the federal government out of all the unconstitutional things is a huge task, but it's something that we need to move forward on in in, in all of these areas. If I could uh, go off this uh, track here for just a moment, I did mention something about uh, Madison um, and uh, his uh, essay, uh, The Federalist Number 41. um, And Basically, the reason I, I mentioned that was that I didn't want uh, Madison's con, uh, comments to be automatically associated with the uh, uh, the bridge case that we've, we've just discussed. And basically, uh, he was not against the concept of, of general welfare in, you know, in, in its entirety. Uh, the Federalists uh, should be interpreted as an explanation of the limitation of federal police power, not state police power. I think you you have to look at at uh, uh, the Federalist Number Forty One more closely to to appreciate that. Yes, and, and indeed, the balance of powers between the federal and the state governments were something that was of grave grave concern. Uh, to our founders, which is why, as we've said before, in Federalist 45, that uh, uh, Madison clearly states that the balance of powers is really in favor of the state governments. They have wide-ranging powers. The federal government only has the delegated, enumerated, limited, listed powers that are in the Constitution and nothing else. Well, we have a federal government now that says, hey, we're going to determine the boundaries of our own powers, and uh, you just have to abide by it. Whatever, Whatever we determine, that's what it will be. Well, this requires an education, and we, the people, are the ones that need to uh, learn what our founding uh, documents say. We need to learn what the limits that our founders placed upon the federal government were, and we need to demand that those who represent us in Congress, those who we elect and send to Congress, abide by those limits. They do not allow the federal government to expand its powers 
unconstitutionally. And so the contract and the right to contract, which uh, was a sacred right, according to our founders, needs to be protected and defended. And that's why uh, this case, the uh, uh, Warren River Bridge versus the Charles River Bridge Company, was an important uh, statement about contracts. Contracts mean what they say and no more than what they say. And what they said to those who originally crafted them, uh, that is what they say and nothing more. So as uh, uh, citizens in our role, we need to be certain that we understand the limits that the federal government has placed upon it in our Constitution and then communicate those to those who represent us in Washington, D.C. Because if we do not, we will continue to see the government grow greater and greater and grab more and more power and more and more of our livelihood as well as as our property, things like eminent domain that we talked about in the last series. And we can only do that as we gain an understanding, which is why this show, We the People, the Constitution Matters, exists. We encourage you to check out our podcast. Uh, that's at 1180WFYL.com. And by the way, Mike Jeremia has a great show just before ours on Friday morning, 7 a.m. Check out Mike G in the morning, The Law Matters. And join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m., for We the People, The Constitution Matters. <laughs>